6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, verses 12 through 17. Verse 7, And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore, I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. See, that's one of the reasons I believe it was Jesus Christ, because I notice every time someone sees God, the throne of God, or what have you, the immediate reaction is not awe and elation, it's despair in terms of recognizing the incredible gap that exists between God and the person involved. And Daniel's no exception. He wasn't excited about this. He says, the, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption and I retained no strength. He's undone by this. Verse 9, yet I heard the voice of his words and when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face and my face toward the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee. Stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words." So the first insight, for some reason, this messenger was dispatched when Daniel started to fast. See, how long did it take him to get there? 21 days. Okay. Why did it take him so long? Verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now, when we first read this, we fall into the error of assuming that kings and princes here are the kinds of kings and princes you and I can touch, feel, or write notes to. That's not what he's talking about. You notice he says, Michael, one of the chief princes. Now, Michael we know. Who's Michael? A spirit being, an angel. So these labels of kings and priests are ranks, but not human ranks. And the insight we're going to get here is, apparently, there is a prince of the kingdom of Persia. What, what was the empire that was running the world, as far as Daniel was concerned, at that time? Chapter 10, verse 1. It was, namely, Cyrus, the king of Persia. Is the king of Persia, is Cyrus the one talking in verse 13? No, it is a spirit being that somehow is behind the Persian empire. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one in 20 days. In other words, this guy fought and withheld this messenger. For how long? 21 days. The chapter doesn't bring this up, but I have to ask you, isn't it provocative that Daniel was fasting for 21 days, and this messenger, it took him 21 days to break through and get, get arrive? Conjecture. What would have happened if Daniel decided to go off his fast after 20 days? Or 19 days? 
It doesn't say this, but you can't help but surmise that somehow Daniel's fasting is linked to the spiritual battle going on for this messenger to get through what's opposing him. Some kind of spirit being called the prince of the kingdom of Persia, but we're not through yet. And by the way, he withstood me one in 20 days, and lo, Michael, this is one of the reasons some scholars don't believe this is Jesus Christ, because he wouldn't have that problem. You follow me? That's, that's the other side of the argument. That's why I don't want to get into that here. The main point is, we have Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Clearly, Michael and this messenger together were able to subdue or get through the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And he says, verse 14, Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. What's going to happen after this chapter is that this messenger is now going to give Daniel a two-chapter detailed history of what's going to happen to Israel from that day to the very end when God wraps up the whole thing. That's why 11 and 12 are very exciting chapters. But before he gives him the actual content of the message, he's sharing with Daniel the problems he's had getting through to Daniel. Verse 15, And when he had spoken such words unto me, and I set my face toward the ground, I became dumb. And behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and spoke and said unto him, Who stood before me? O my Lord, by the vision my sorrows are turned upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? For as for me straightway there remained no strength in me, neither is there a breath left in me. Daniel is undone by this whole thing, obviously. Then there came again and touched me, one like the appearance of a man, and he strengthened me and said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be unto thee, and be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. Then said he, Knowest thou why I come unto thee? And now I will return to fight with the prince of Persia, and when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Greece shall come. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth, that there is none that holdeth with me in these things but Michael, your prince. Interesting perception we have here. This messenger went through a warfare to get through opposition to bring the next two chapters to Daniel. And he points out that he's alone, except for Michael, your prince. So see, Michael is the prince of Israel. He's the warrior in charge of the hosts of God's high ones that are defending Israel. So what this chapter gives us a perspective of is behind the physical scenes, the things you and I see, there is a spiritual combat going on between opposing forces. In this case, it's Michael and his hosts against the prince of the power of Persia. But that's not all. This messenger says, I'm going to give you two chapters, 11 and 12, but when I'm through with you, I've got to go back and fight the prince of Persia. And by the way, then comes the prince of Greece. The Greek empire didn't show up for 200 years. See, we're talking here about roughly 500 B.C., and the, uh, Alexander the Great rose about 323, 300 B.C. So it was a couple hundred years that the Persians ruled, right? But the main point I'm getting into this is this: the Bible gives us the perspective. It's just a murky glimpse, but it's a clear glimpse in the sense that somehow behind the things you and I are aware of in world events are hidden spiritual combatants, powerful forces. And who are they the hosts of? Lucifer, the anointed cherub, having fallen. 
as long as we're talking about this character, I'd like you to turn with me to Jude. The book of Jude is a fascinating, it's, a, it's one of the shortest books in the Bible, and yet there's more stuff in here that, that uh, it's amazing. Jude was the brother of Christ, and he wrote this quaint little epistle just before the book of Revelation. Psychologically, it is so cryptic and so mysterious, it probably puts your mind in the right frame for the Revelation. But anyway, what makes the book so interesting, he has so many allusions that are unique to his book that makes it a fun study. One of the main things that Jude is concerned with are false teachers, people who are bad news doctrinally. And he has a number of things that he goes through here, and I obviously don't want to get into the whole uh, uh, thing with uh, Jude, other than let's pick it up about verse 8. Verses 6 and 7 deal with the fallen angels that went after women in Genesis 6 and all that spooky stuff. You can get the tapes on that if you like, but either of Jude or Genesis 6. But verse 8, in like manner, these also these filthy dreamers, he's speaking now of these false teachers, these people, that these teachers that will try to destroy you by giving you false doctrines. That's what he's talking about. In like manner also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Those are three characteristics of these evil people that Jude is taking after. Defiling the flesh, I think we understand what that is. Despising dominion, that is rebelling against authority, we can understand what that is. The third thing is that they speak evil of dignities. Well, you and I figure that's almost like defiling authority. You, you speak evil, you shouldn't, in other words, Jude is saying, you shouldn't speak evil of dignities, right? But then he gives you an example of what he means, and Jude has to have reached to the most bizarre example you could imagine. Because the dignity he says that you should not speak evil of is Satan. Look what he says in verse 9. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. And he goes on. Now this, this, this verse has all kinds of problems, because first of all, you say, you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where did Michael fight over the body of Moses? You can search the Old Testament, you won't find any reference to it. He's, uh, Judah's making an illusion that uh, we don't have a direct reference to. But apparently, you remember Moses died, who buried Moses? God did. And apparently, there was a dispute over the body. The first point is, where is it? You can't find it in the Old Testament. The illusion here is just Jude's. Secondly, you raise another question. What on earth does anyone care about his body? Dust to dust, right? Well, I guess it's a little more complicated. Uh, the dust is food for who? I won't get into that here. That's spooky stuff. Anyway, Michael, contending with the devil, disputed about the body of Moses. So there's a the struggle going on between Michael and Satan. And the point Jude is making is that even in this context, Michael did not bring against Satan railing accusation. But rather said, the Lord rebuke you. Weird. Satan, with all his terror and with all his power and all his adversarial aspects, is one that Jude tells us we should not speak evil of, in the sense of, of taking on him directly. You let the Lord deal with that. Now don't misunderstand me, you have authority over him, through the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll deal with that before the evening's over, but the first point is, let's tread carefully when we start talking glibly. 
about Lucifer, Satan, the devil, what have you. Let's not be casual. There are two gigantic errors that we're prone to. The first error is to ignore him or disregard him. You can have Bible studies of all shapes and sizes and all kinds of contexts, and people in general will not be uncomfortable. There's all kinds of exciting, interesting, intriguing things that you, can, you encounter in the Bible. There's one area, and that's the one we're in, where people start to get a little uncomfortable. Because we generally do not like to face the reality of his existence, his designs upon you personally, and what his ambitions and, and means and, and mechanisms are. That's the, the one error is to disregard it. The other error is to go the other extreme. See, Satan would love to have you treat Genesis 3 as a quaint myth, to treat him as some kind of symbolic evil, not to recognize that he's a conscious, knowledgeable, resourceful person with a gigantic organization aimed at your destruction. That sounds medieval. That sounds... Weird. That's the one error is to disregard him. The other error is to overreact and tremble. That you see him behind every tree. You, 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 you will find it difficult to be balanced. The first question is about his reality. And I love the remark that, first of all, the reality is clearly identified in the scripture, but there's even more tangible than that. Spurgeon, I believe, was credited with the remark, anyone that does not believe in Satan should try opposing him for a while. And that issue will quickly disappear. And I won't ask for a show of hands. It might be my estimate that not all, but a large number of the hands that went up when we started tonight, whether you realize it or not, probably have their origin in some kind of spiritual warfare where you're the pawn. That raises all kinds of other issues. Let me, at this point, shift gears just a tad. Huh? About time, right? You might turn with me to 1 John, chapter 4. 1 John, chapter 4. And I want you, in your notes, to make... I'm not going to get into a big study, but uh, I want to at least leave you with a couple of handholds here, a couple of places to grab, so I don't leave you driving home tonight in, with sweaty palms. <laughs> The verse I'm after is 1 John 4, 4. You can at your own leisure get this in context. It talks about the spirit of Antichrist and so forth being in the world and false prophets and so on. But the key verse that you probably will want to memorize is 1 John 4, 4. Ye are of God, little children. Question before we go forward. How many of you are in Jesus Christ? Praise God. If there's anyone not certain what that means, see me afterwards. Okay, then this is speaking of you if you're in Christ. Ye are of God if you're in Christ, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. First question, who is he talking about as being in the world? Satan. Satan, one of his many titles in the Bible is the prince of this world. You say, well, gee, I thought the, you know, this world is God's. Ultimate, in an ultimate sense, yes. But let me remind you of the temptations of Jesus Christ. In fact, we should probably, let's not do that in a surmise. Let's, let's pop back. It's, I think, either Matthew 4 or Luke 4. Let's try Matthew 4 and um, take a glimpse here. 
In, in Matthew chapter 4, we have the famous event right after Jesus' baptism where he was tempted of the devil. And um, it's, it's, it's recorded as having three specific temptations. The first one was, you know, turn the stones into bread because he was hungry after his fast. That was one thing. But I'd like you to pick it up about verse 8. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceedingly high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And said unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Let me pick it up in Luke 4, because there's a subtle difference in Luke that may be useful to us. In Luke chapter 4, we have the Luke account of the same event. Picking it up at verse 5 of Luke 4, And the devil taking him up on a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And how he did it, I have no idea, but it's not material. Somehow, in a moment of time, Satan presented to Jesus Christ, conceptually in some way, all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said unto him, All this authority will I give thee in the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. Let me back up a minute. Suppose I offered to sell you the coast of Newport Beach for $2,000. How many of you would be tempted to part with your money? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Your willingness to turn that proposition down is no particular uh, regard for your business judgment. Because first point, there's no way that you would be tempted to part with your money unless you believed I owned it. Now, a few hands went up. I assume you may think that I own Newport Beach. I, uh, I've had a lot, of, a lot of strange rumors surround me for some reason, but that ain't one of them, all right? The point I was trying to make is you're only tempted with a proposition if you have the conviction that I can deliver. You follow me? I just picked a strange example. It's like selling, it's the classic model is to sell you the Brooklyn Bridge. You're not tempted to buy the Brooklyn Bridge from me because I have no credibility that I own it. You follow me? The first point, for you to be tempted with my proposition, you have to at least believe I can deliver. Follow what I'm saying? Now Satan says here in verse 6, all this will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and whom, to whomsoever I will, I give it. Jesus Christ does not challenge the ownership of the world by Satan. He has it. He has the authority. He has the dominion. He lays claim to it first, and then offers it to Jesus Christ. Verse 7, If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. Now, if Satan didn't own this, if this was a vain boast, Jesus could have just call his bluff. Nuts to you, fellow. You don't own it. That's not what he says. Verse 8, Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Jesus obviously does not accept the proposition. But it's one of the three temptations of Jesus Christ, which implies, it supports this whole idea, that Satan is the prince of this world. Okay? That's what you're up against. Yes, you're up against the flesh, and let me not minimize that. Satan is bound for a thousand years, and there's enough residual evil in man to still blow it at the end of the thousand years. So the flesh is the flesh. The flesh, the world, and the devil. The world has its hold on us, or would have. The world is his instrument. He owns it. 
So if we stumble and fall, if we're tempted, whatever, hey, we're victims of his designs, his peculiar, bizarre ambitions to thwart God's plan and purpose for you. When did God start dealing with you? Before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. God has a plan for you. He has a grand design for your life. And it's His desire for you to make those choices to align your life with His grand design. But He has given you sovereignty. The one that will try to, try to thwart that is, of course, your adversary, your slanderer, Satan himself. So the first thing, though, what, what John reminds us here is greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Who is in you if you're in Christ? Jesus or the Holy Spirit. Phrase it how you like. The point is God is resident in you. You can't feel it. It's not, a, it's not an experiential thing. Oh, yes, there's, there's infilling experiences. I'm, 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 what I'm saying is it's not dependent on your experience. It's dependent on the Word of God. But you have the Holy Spirit securing you in Christ. Paul tells us in Ephesians. So as we encounter these spooky, bizarre, weird things, remember the greater is he that is in you than he is in the world. The more you learn about Satan, the more you'll begin to realize the power, the, per the pervasiveness of his activities. And as you get into that, it's easy to get kind of spooked and get uh, to lose your balanced perspective. And that's the secret in life anyway, isn't it? It's balance getting these things in proper balance. But the thing that keeps you in balance is that God himself, the creator of this original character, is uh, the creator is in you. And the battle is determined. It was won finally for good at a cross 1,900 years ago. So Jesus has title. He doesn't have possession. He will take possession when he's ready. And there seems to be a lot of evidence that he's getting ready. Uh, <laughs> Let's, as long as we've plunged ourselves into this quagmire of, of, uh, of this whole area, let's not leave this area and without going to Ephesians chapter 6. Because we've, we've opened a Pandora's box here, so to speak, by getting into this dark side, if I can use that phrase. And I'd like to commend to you two things. I'd like you to remember Ephesians 6, especially verses 11 on. It's a classical phrase in the, in the epistles of Paul where God will tell you how to deal with these issues. Furthermore, in addition to this, if those of you that are inclined to do some additional reading, I'd also like to encourage you to get a borrow or get a copy of a book called Combat Faith. Combat Faith by Hal Lindsey. It's a very practical field manual for the combat that all of us are in and will continue to be in. But uh, the, the core ideas are right here in Ephesians 6, verse starting, we'll pick it up about verse 11. Well, let's pick it up verse 10. Finally, my brethren, that's a misleading word. Often Paul will say, finally, my brethren, and go on for three or four more chapters. But in this case, he does start to wrap it up. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Incidentally, that's not an option. That's a commandment. You are commanded to be strong, to be bold, to know your ground. You can't do that unless you've done your homework. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. That's encouraging, yet there's also pitfalls. It doesn't say be, be strong 
and powerful. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Satan will love to get you to undertake something in your own strength. If he succeeds at getting you to do that, he's won. At least the, he may not have won the war. He may have won the tactical battle. The Lord has ensured the outcome of the war. We just like to get through the battle with as few bruises as possible. In the power of His might, put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The devil is bright. He's crafty. He's the ultimate ch chicanery artist. And he will do all kinds of things to confuse you, trap you, get you to stumble. How do you fight that? Not with one little trick, with the whole armor. Great, what's the armor? Now, well, I'll come back to that. Let's see, verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And this is really tough for the guys here. You girls can probably appreciate this, but the guys especially. They would love to draw swords and go for it. If I gave you the opportunity right now to die for Jesus Christ, most of you guys would be up that aisle and go for it. That's the easy thing. How about living for Christ? Oh, that's tough. One grand heroic would be super. Let's get it over with and get my rewards and let's get on with the show. The nature of the masculine th being is to draw that sword and go for it. Right? Huh? But that's not the problem, guys. It isn't that macho thing. Wouldn't it be neat if it was? We'd know how to train for it. We'd be up for it. You know, maybe I'm, I think I'm speaking for all you guys. I happen to be a graduate you know, of, a, of a school that the Russians call a, a school for assassins. They often run articles about West Point, Annapolis, and, and call us all kinds of things that are intended to solve us. Actually, makes us feel pretty important. Um, but, you know, you have four years of hand-to-hand. -hand, you get trained in, in, the, in all the related sciences to, to a professional career, and, and you sort of get oriented. Hey, you want, let's go for it, you know? But that's not what it's all about, guys. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Boy, it would be easy if we did. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.